All right, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Our text for today comes from Jude 8 through 13. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him or for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom uh, blackest darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Again, uh, I only, we only read cheery passages of scripture uh, at Grace Community Church. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I got a question this morning. Uh, who do you follow? Who do you follow? It's an interesting question. Uh, it's, it's a little question, actually. It's just a couple words, but it also turns out to be really, really complicated. When you get down into the base and you really begin to ask this question of who do you follow? Another way of asking this question might be who do you listen to, right? On a weekly basis, who are the, what are the voices that you listen to? You, who uh, do you take your cues from, right? There's somebody, there's people. Whose opinion do you value the most? This is an interesting question, right? Is there someone in your life whose opinion you value the most? What news source do you go to to get your news? Who's, whose voice carries the most weight in your life? You know, it's impossible for us as human beings to not follow someone or something. We live our whole life based on uh, the authority of, that we lend to other people as we follow them, as we believe them, as we trust them. And one of, if not the central claim of the Christian faith, is that Jesus, Jesus Christ, is the person in all of the world that we are called to follow, that we are called to listen to, that we are called to make our, the primary authority in our lives. And it seems that the Jesus of the Bible believes that he is worthy of followership as well. When, when he finds his first two disciples fishing by the sea, just two young Jewish guys uh, living their life as fishermen, he invites them to leave everything that they know and everything that they, they've known up until that point, their profession, and to follow him, to follow him physically and uh, metaphorically. He says, follow me. And these two young Jewish fishermen do just that. They leave house and home, they leave safety, they leave everything they know, and they follow him. Jesus makes the same invitation to other people in the Gospels as well. In Mark's Gospel, it's one of the most common refrains that you hear. Some, uh, some people follow Jesus, and other people don't follow Jesus, do they? Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. When he, when he happens upon him in his tax collecting booth at the side of the road, and apparently Matthew just leaves everything behind. I don't know what he did with the money, 
But uh, he gets up in that moment and he follows Jesus and he becomes one of his disciples. In Mark's gospel, Jesus heals a blind man named Bartimaeus in the city of Jericho. If you've read the Old Testament, that's a significant city in your mind. And when Jesus heals him, he says this to him, go, uh, your faith has healed you. Go, your faith has healed you. Get out of here. But Bartimaeus decides that go part is not what he wants to do after he has been healed. He thinks this man who's just healed him is worthy of followership. And so the text tells us that he then follows Jesus. He becomes a follower of him. You know, one of the people who Jesus actually invites to be one of his followers in the Gospels doesn't end up following him. It's a guy that's only called the rich young ruler. And whenever I read that passage, I'm always startled by the fact that Jesus makes this invitation to him. Jesus says some stuff about uh, giving all your money away to the poor, which the rich young ruler wasn't comfortable uh, doing at all and was part of the reason that he didn't follow Jesus. But I'm always startled that Jesus says, sell everything that you own, follow me. Sell everything that you own, uh, leave it all behind and come follow me, be with me. But this young ruler, blinded by his wealth, doesn't see the value of what he is being offered, right? And so he chooses to follow someone or something else, probably just his money, right? You see, we all follow someone or something. We all do instinctively. It's impossible not to. But there is a problem. And that problem is that sometimes it's hard for us to even know what it is we're following. We don't always, we don't always ask that question when we imbibe things or when we believe things or when we follow people. There are so many ideas in the world, aren't there? There's a, there's a ton of ideas and ideologies. There's philosophies. There's just a glut of charismatic people who are all like, I'm really cool. Come follow me. Right? And most of us, if we see an attractive, charismatic person, we inherently trust them. Right? That's why you're all here. Um, <laughs> but the, here's the thing about followership. Here's the thing about followership. We can be misled, can't we? We can all be misled. I think we've all, in our lives, at one point or another, actually been misled, right? And one of the things that happens in the New Testament often, in the New Testament letters specifically, is that the writers of the New Testament address this issue of followership. They address this issue of who are you following and how are you following? You see, uh, in our teaching text for today, the people that Jude is writing to are being led astray by bad teachers. They're following someone they shouldn't follow, and, and they're following them into uh, a way of life that doesn't help them, doesn't allow them to flourish. You see, our souls crave something or someone to follow, don't they? We, we all want that, even if you're in this place and you're like, I'm just a rugged individual, right? I don't take my cues from anybody. Chances are you got that philosophy of life from someone else, right? That the philosophy of life that says I'm just a rugged individual and I do what I want and I don't follow anybody is actually a form of following, right? You just follow John Wayne. <laughs> you don't know it, but you do. Our souls crave something to follow or some example or some person or some idea that we can latch onto that gives our 
our lives meaning, significance, uh, purpose, that, 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 so, that we, so that what we think and believe and who we are can kind of cohere in our lives. Followership is necessary if we're to make sense of our lives in any way, shape, and form. And Jude is writing his short letter to a group of people in a church who have clinged on to leaders, to teachers, who they shouldn't be following. People that they have mistakenly put their hope or trust in. And these people have led them down a path that is not good. You see, Jude is quite concerned that if the church follows the instructions of some of these false teachers that have, what he says earlier in the text, have crept into the church, that uh, there will allow, that's going to, that's going to create this situation where they allow themselves to be deceived by the ideas that are being put forward by these leaders, these bad ideas that are being put forward by these leaders. And as we pointed out last week, what Jude wants for his people is not to just follow some arbitrary rules. Rather, Jude wants his audience to flourish. He wants his listeners to flourish. He wants love and mercy and peace to be multiplied in their lives. And because of this, he uses some very, very strong language that we just heard read because he sees that, that they're, uh, he sees something quite clearly. He sees that if, the, if his audience continues to follow these teachers, if they continue down this road of follow, followership, they're going to make some bad decisions in their lives. It's going, to lead them some, it's going to lead them somewhere that they don't want to be. And Jude is kind of like a loving father. He's very pastoral in this letter, actually, who sees his kids on the brink of maybe some destructive behavior. And like any good dad, he wants to speak to that. And like any good dad, do you know what he does in order to communicate to his, to his kids uh, that they're off track? He tells them some stories. <laughs> he tells them some stories. He doesn't, he, he's pretty straightforward, but he uses a, a, a series of, of rapid-fire stories to communicate to his audience that they are on the wrong track, that, that their followership is misplaced, that they need to reorient their lives towards something else, something better. And right here in the passage we read is where the book of Jude gets really, really complicated. It gets quite complicated, in fact. Because Jude uses a bunch of stories, like I said, he, and he shoots them at his audience in kind of rapid-fire succession uh, in order to make his point. But he's telling some stories here that his listeners would have been familiar with, but that we as 21st century Americans, as modern readers of this scripture, are not familiar with, which is why it sounds so strange to us. He tells a few stories from the Bible, and... Uh, the, the story of Balaam and the story of Cain and the story of Korah's rebellion that we read about in Numbers. But he also tells some extra-biblical stories. Now, uh, some extra-biblical stories is stories that are drawn from writings that are not actually in our Bible. Actually, Jude pulls from two extra-biblical sources that we know of. There might have been more. But the pr two primary extra-biblical stories that, that Jude is kind of pulling off of here to, to communicate to this group of people is the book of First Enoch, which was, a, which was an ancient Jewish apocalyptic book that was uh, 
written in the voice of Enoch. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, you might be familiar with this character of Enoch. And the second book that he references is called the Testament of Moses, which is another ancient Jewish book that we don't find in our Bibles. Now, these books are very interesting. Uh, they're very useful for scholars of ancient Judaism and early Christianity, but they are books that Christians don't consider to be canonical. Now we're going to get a little Bible nerdy here this morning. Um, but canonical simply means that these books don't belong in the canon of Scripture. We don't believe that they are divinely inspired and carry the weight or the authority of the 66 books of the Bible uh, that you have. Uh, but these books would have been known to his audience, these two books that I just quoted here. And Jude, and it, was, it was, would be something familiar to them, right? Think of a really popular, uh, really popular book that, that we're all familiar with. And if I told you a story from that book, you would all kind of jive with us. His audience, his audience would have known these stories. Um, and so uh, it's easy when we read this kind of complicated passage of scripture that has a lot of stories that are kind of woven in interconnected way together, it's easy to really get caught up in the details of the story. But I don't think the details of the story are, are Jude's point. I think we, when we read this passage of scripture, we need to focus on, uh, we, need to, we don't need to focus on the details so much as we focus on the main point that Jude is trying to make with those stories, if that makes sense. And the point Jude is trying to make is basically that there are teachers uh, in, <laughs> just like in the stories that he's talking about, that want to lead the people astray. They want to take them in a direction that they shouldn't go. And Jude wants to make really clear to his audience from the use of these stories that this has happened before and it's happening to them now. And if the people continue to follow, they will be like, for instance, if you're familiar with uh, the Pentateuch and the book of Numbers and the story of Moses and the people of Israel, he mentions the rebellion of Korah. The rebellion of, of Korah is a story in the book of Numbers where 250, or 249 people followed Korah, so 250 total people, in an attempt to rebel against Moses, and they were destroyed. And Jude wants his audience to be more, more discerning than the people who followed Korah into this rebellion and were destroyed. He wants them to be more wise in their followership than those people were. And so he uses these stories as a means of trying to jog the memory in the mind of his audience in such a way as that they would pay attention to what he is saying, that they would take him seriously. This is what he's doing. And Jude, and the reason Jude is so firm, I think, here, the reason he sounds so worked up, apart from what we talked about last week in that he's speaking in the language or in the motif of a Hebrew prophet, is that he knows the human heart. He knows the human heart in the same way we know our own hearts. And he knows that humans are always looking for something and someone to follow, aren't we? Any, uh, anyone who's uh, been a teenager or who has had teenagers knows the ways in which you can switch from thing to thing to thing to thing to follow. I had a friend in high school who it seemed like he was into a different subculture of teenage life every other week. Like one week he was into punk rock music and the next week he was into rap music and the next week he went and got a tattoo and showed me and I was like, how did you get a tattoo? Because uh, <laughs> you're 14. Uh, did you did you clear that with your parents? The, the, 
we know that we want to follow something, and we're always looking to, like, codify our identity behind a person or an idea or a thing or a movement. And Jude knows this about us. He knows that our hearts uh, want to follow. And so he wants to help his audience both identify the fact that bad leaders have come into the church, poor teachers have come into the church, church, but he also, in this book, wants to give his audience a criteria or a way of discerning if the person they are following is worthy of their followership. Jude wants to give a criteria for how to recognize bad leaders, someone that should not be followed. And here's what he says in verse 12. He says this, These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up with their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. It's quite a bleak picture, but the part of me that likes poetry also thinks those are some beautiful images uh, and some really good poetry. Way to go, Jude. Um, But what I want to focus on here is verse 12, is verse 12, where he says, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. And here's the part I want to emphasize. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Shepherds who feed only themselves. When, When Jude calls these people, these leaders, shepherds who feed only themselves, He's calling back on a long tradition within the Hebrew Bible of likening the the leaders of the Hebrew people to shepherds. The greatest leaders in the Old Testament, uh, the two greatest leaders in the Old Testament, Moses and David, were both shepherds by trade. Uh, Moses, after he went into the wilderness of Midian and he uh, became a shepherd. David, before he was ever king and he was just watching his dad's Uh, watching his dad's flocks. He was a shepherd. And possibly for this reason, because the greatest leaders of the Old Testament had this, I don't know, side hustle uh, called shepherding, uh, the shepherding became a shorthand way of saying a leader. A shepherd was just a shorthand way of saying a leader. A good leader was like a good shepherd who cared for the sheep But a bad shepherd was like a bad leader, someone who didn't care for their sheep, who didn't want their sheep to flourish. And this same image, this same analogy of a good shepherd is is one that the prophet Ezekiel uses in his famous prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 32, when he is kind of lambasting the leaders of Israel. He says this, beginning in Ezekiel 32, verse 1. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not care, you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. 
There's all kinds of connections that should be happening here in your brain. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because uh, there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6. Jude says that the way you can tell a good shepherd from a bad shepherd or a good leader from a bad leader is that they put the needs and the well-being of their flock before themselves. They don't look to their own interests. They don't, they don't use people to acquire some good for themselves or some comfort for themselves or some purpose for themselves. This seems like a pretty simple litmus test, doesn't it? Pretty accurate. But it's more difficult than I think we understand. You see, it's possible that you are following something or someone, even in an implicit way, even some way that's like kind of in the background of your life, that doesn't want the best for you, that doesn't want to keep you safe, that doesn't want peace and love and joy and mercy to flourish in your life. And John wants his audience to wake up to the fact that what they are following is actually quite bad for them. And they need to turn away from it. They need to walk away from these false leaders, from these bad leaders, from these poor shepherds who, when they sit down to eat, are more concerned with what they can get than what they can give to others. They're more concerned with the ways in which they can take advantage of the people than they are with caring for the people. They are, they are more concerned with their own health and safety than they are with bandaging up the broken, with going and searching for those who are lost or fearful. Simply put, they're just bad shepherds. Their sheep are unhealthy. And, and Jude is saying to his audience, this is what you're like if you follow these type of people. This is what will happen to you. You'll be like sick sheep. And you need a good shepherd. Now, what's fascinating about this passage in Ezekiel is that this is a passage of Scripture that Jesus uses, specifically in Mark chapter 6, in the story of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. That passage, Jesus quotes, and says he, it says, He looks on the people, these people who are hungry, all of these people who are hungry who've just heard him teach, and the text tells us that he had compassion on them. And as he sees this group of people who he has compassion on, he says this thing. He says this phrase. They look like sheep without a shepherd. They look with like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus does this miraculous miracle of feeding the 5,000 in that moment to both care for them and be concerned for them, but also... Um, kind of prophetically, as a sign of who Jesus is and what he wants for our lives, he feeds the 5,000 in that moment as a means of communicating to his disciples and to everyone who reads that story down through the ages that he is a good shepherd, that he cares for the sheep, that he has the best interest of others in mind, and that he is more concerned with their health than his own, right? This is what Jesus is like. You see, 
humans, bad human leaders, often see power as a means to exploit people for personal benefit. But that's not the heart of Jesus, is it? That's not the heart of Jesus. And uh, Jesus is a leader that we can trust. He's somebody who we can follow wholeheartedly and trust that as we follow him, as we walk out this life as his followers, good things will happen to us because he cares for us. You know, Jude is concerned that these leaders are leading people's hearts away from Jesus and that that is going to hurt them. And he wants his audience to know that they can follow Jesus. His concern is that these leaders are not just leading people away from proper behavior, right? This isn't just about Jude saying, don't do these bad stuff and make sure you do these, these good things. Rather, he is concerned that these people are being led away from the true shepherd of their lives. You see, here's something I've found in my life. The slope away from Jesus is gradual, but it's slippery. The slope away from Jesus is gradual, but it's slippery. As we put our hope and our faith and our, in our uh, we pay more attention to other thing, uh, things other than Jesus. As there's, we live in a world that is always vying for our affection. And we have, we're being constantly communicated to about all of these things that we're called to put our faith and trust in. We are called to follow all manners of philosophies and things. There's uh, just implicit messages coming at us all of the time. The slope away from followership in Jesus is gradual, but it is slick. It is slippery. And there are a lot of people in our culture following after things and people that don't actually have their best interests in mind. You and I, just implicitly, are following after things that don't have our best interests in mind. You know, one of the things that's always striking to me when we live living in the world that we live in is have you ever heard of this term brand loyalty right did anybody raise your hand have you ever heard of the term brand loyalty it's the it's the idea that if target treats you really really well you'll only shop at target right amen all the people say uh sorry that's a joke we like target in our family um uh this idea of brand loyalty so they want to treat you really really nice so that you will come back to Target as many times as possible. They want to. They want to create. A, they want to make you followers of a particular brand, of thing. The truth of the matter is, though they want you to become a follower of that brand, for the most part, those brands don't have your best interests at heart, do they? The reason they want to do that is to sell you more stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, if you if you were down and out and you walked into a Target and you're like. Could you help me out with my rent? <laughs> they would go, that's not what we do here at Target, <laughs> right? We don't help you with your rent. We, uh, we take your rent money, uh, <laughs> right? And we, uh, and w- but we have some really nice, d- d- uh <laughs> in my one of the temptations of my life when I go to Target is to buy the bottom shelf detergent for your dishwasher rather than the top shelf detergent, because I really believe that if I buy the top shelf detergent, my life's going to be better. So uh, <laughs> so you, they, they're trying to sell you the top shelf detergent. That's the truth of the matter. That there's a brand loyalty there, right? So th- different, um, different tech companies are this way as well. Apple, right? They want you to have brand loyalty, and all of my stuff is Apple, so I fully bought into that system. 
Uh, I'm, I am a full-fledged follower of Apple, and yet they don't really have my best interests in mind, do they? They don't really. They want, they want me to consume their items, and maybe they even want to give me a good product, but ultimately they don't have my best interests in mind. They don't care if I flourish as a person, in all truth. You see, uh, anything we follow in this world other than Jesus, for the most part, will not lead us in the right direction. That we, we live in a broken world, and we all have a wandering eye, don't we? We're looking for things to follow. We're looking for things to put our hope and our trust in. But Jesus wants to be our good shepherd. He wants to lead us in paths of righteousness. He wants to comfort us. He wants to give us good gifts. And with a shepherd like that, why, is the question this morning, why do we look to other things? Why do, we, why do we look to other people? Why do we look to other systems? Why do we look to other ideologies and try to follow them when we have this good of a shepherd? And my answer to that question is, I have no clue. I don't know. But we do it, don't we? And we need to be reminded of the fact that we, we serve a good shepherd who wants to lead us in good paths. The temptation of our lives is to put our followership behind other things other than Jesus. To be fed off of things other than Jesus. You know, at the beginning of Jude's letter to his audience, this is why he tells them, you have to contend for your faith. You have to take an active posture. You need to get into an athletic stance in your faith. And the reason he says this is because he knows the inherent nature of uh, all of us. That if we, if we are not uh, aware, if we're not vigilant, if we're not willing to contend, our heart, our affection will just go to other stuff naturally. But as we, uh, but as we empowered by the Holy Spirit, put our eyes on Jesus and r consistently remind ourselves, both in community, in, in, as a part of a church, but also as we are following Jesus on our own, to ke kind of keep our eyes on him, what we discover is that we begin to learn how to follow better and better and better. And we begin to learn how to um, kind of extract those other attachments from our lives. Because, and Jude says this quite clearly, passivity will naturally lead us to unhealthy followership. But active pursuit of Christ will lead us to a kind of appropriate followership as we follow Jesus. Our hearts were just, con they were just constructed to follow. But the point is of this all is where are our eyes? But here's the good news this morning. Jesus is always calling to us. He's always calling to us with a heart of compassion, not of judgment, not of condemnation, but of compassion. Jesus is always showing us that he is the good shepherd and that he can be trusted in our followership. He's someone who has our best interest in mind. He's not just looking for brand loyalty. You see, Jesus is the model of what a good leader, a good shepherd should look like. And so the question this morning that we come back around to from the beginning, who are you following? Who are you following? Are you following Jesus? 
Have you allowed him to be the good shepherd in your life? Because, and I believe this, if you are not following Jesus, you are following someone or something else. There is no other option. You can't just not follow. But no other